Resolute Square. Our guest today on The Enemies List is John Ralston, Nevada's most plugged-in, smartest political analyst out there. He is the editor of The NVND, which you should follow it on the Twitter machine and elsewhere, at The N-V-N-D-I-N-D-Y. And John has joined us today to talk a little bit about one of the most important states, the We Matter state, in this upcoming election. And I wanted to talk to John just to ask him a few questions about exactly where things are headed in the great state of Nevada and to find out where he sees the race as of today. So, John, we'll, we'll cut right to that one. Where do you see the presidential race in your state as we sit today in December? It seems like an infinity away, but it's less than a year now before the election. Where do you see it in the, in the Trump versus Biden great brouhaha? Rick, it's great to be with you. I appreciate the invite. I have to tell you, it still seems like it's infinity away to me, and it's tough to say. We're a purple state. You know that. We matter state. We're very close in registration. And so we've had this kind of anomaly happen here because of a motor voter law where we've had this explosion of independent registration. And a lot of these are are what I call dead voters, not literally, but people are being defaulted to independent voters at the DMV. Probably don't even, a lot of them don't know they're registered. A lot of them aren't going to vote. So it's a little more difficult to analyze than than usual. But since you uh, gave me that gushing introduction that I presume was completely sincere. I better come up with an answer for you. And, 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 and that is this. I, I think in presidential years here, ever since 2008, when we became an early state and, and the Democratic machine, the so-called Reed machine, uh, became preeminent, the Democrats have a slight advantage here in presidential races, all other things being equal. But you've been around this for a long time, too, Rick. This is one of those years where uh, are all other things going to be equal? I doubt it. Something's going to happen that neither of us can predict, maybe more than one thing, maybe a dozen things. But right now, I'd say that Biden has a slight edge, but not much of an edge. That makes sense. I mean, it, it is certainly a, as you said, a purple state, one of the few remaining purple states where there will be a a fight to the absolute finish. I had this as a later question, but since you mentioned the independent voter registration numbers that are popping out there, what's your take on the role that a third-party candidate or third-party candidates or a third party like no labels could make in 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 Nevada on this in this cycle? Because it seems like that might be there's something in my gut that says there that there's some appeal to that in in your state. I think that's right. I mean, all you national guys think we're a weird state. Oh, dude, I'm from Florida. We Nothing's are. weird to me. <laughs> it's, it's always the competition between Florida and Nevada. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
But but listen, I think you're right about that. But of course, uh, you know, it's hard to do that in the, in 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 the hypothetical way because we don't know who that candidate might be. Right. I give the Democrats more uh, ability to turn out their base than the Republicans, although that has started to change. Uh, Rick, you know, last cycle uh, was the first time we had elected a, a Republican governor in a long time. He barely won. The race was very close as with the Senate race that that uh, Catherine Cortez Masto, the Democratic incumbent, won by 8,000 votes, less than 1%. Joe Lombardo, the new governor, won by about a point and a half. And he has erected a political operation around him uh, that is that is pretty impressive, at least in the early going, to try to compete with what the, with the Reed machine. And what happened in that race is that Lombardo was was smart enough to go and find independents who are really Republicans in disguise, right? I think that was the difference. Laxalt ran a base campaign to the far right, MAGA, all that other stuff. And he was a terrible candidate too, but that's a story <laughs> for another day. <laughs> but, you know, Mark Melman, the Democratic pollster, once said in an event that I hosted, there's no such thing as an independent voter. They're all uh, just stalking horses for Democrats and Republicans. I think that's less true now, though, than when than when Mark said that uh, seven, eight years ago, whenever whenever it was. And I think there are real independent voters. Don't forget, too, I'm talking about Nevada's quirks. We have this thing called none of these candidates uh, in, in which voters in any statewide race can throw their votes to none of these candidates. If ever there were a year, if it is indeed Biden and Trump, that none of these candidates could fill up a little more than usual. It's this cycle. I was conscious of that, but I'd forgotten about that for the purposes of this discussion is it's one of the very few states where voters can just say, nah, not today. I don't want any of these people. Has that ever had like a like a greater than 10 percent hit on a on a on a contest out there? I've got to imagine it's, it's something waiting to happen this year. It's never had a real impact in a presidential race, right? Because generally people are going to vote for who they want for president and not just throw away their vote. It actually, uh, a few cycles back, won the Democratic primary. And that was a year in which the Democrats put up no candidate against a very popular incumbent Republican governor by the name of Brian Sandoval. But it's never had a real impact in a major, major race, like a presidential race or a Senate race, except for maybe Dean Heller uh, winning against Shelley Berkeley by 12,000 votes and the above got like 40,000 in 2012. So it's a close state right now. That's definitely puts a wild card into it. What's driving the vote this year in Nevada? What We always have these like 30,000 foot discussions in the country, especially us national guys, is, but even though I live here in Tallahassee, Florida, but there's 30,000 foot discussions of these meta issues driving the vote. What's the stuff on the ground that real people are talking about, uh, about what counts for them in this election, how they're going to make that decision on Trump versus Biden, particularly? I, I hate to caveat every answer because I sound like some of the politicians I, I, I used to interview all the time, but uh, I, you, you and I both know that whatever the issues are today may not be the issues when the election occurs, much less tomorrow, if we were to talk the way mm-hmm. the velocity of things work these days. 
right? But remember that Nevada was disproportionately hit, as we always are, uh, when when there was a national cataclysm like COVID. Right. The, the, the strip was shut down for two months. The strip essentially is the economic engine of the state. And even though the unemployment rate now it soared to 15% or so, is now about a third of that, that's still relatively high for the country. And you know what all these polls are showing, Rick, is that the perception of the economy is, is in some ways more important than the reality of the economy. But I think there are people, because of the nature of Nevada's economy, uh, blue-collar workers who uh, are, may not be uh, uh, as safe for Biden as they used to be uh, here. And then, you know, we're, we're going back to the Reagan Democrat type voters Right. And and so I think it's the economy. That's a long way of getting to. It. I think that's the economy here. And, and I think that it's an interesting dichotomy because you've got the national Republicans saying how terrible the economy is and blaming Biden. While you have a new Republican governor here sending out press releases, taking credit for how the economy is turning around. So that's going to be a fun phenomenon to watch. It is interesting because I, I have noticed Lombardo's out there. And it's funny because my perception, at least from afar, was he didn't run as much uh, of the sort of like the Laxaltian hyper MAGA campaign as you just mentioned a minute ago. He seems like he's almost trying to, you know, he's by, by no means is he some sort of progressive or a liberal, but he's almost trying to cut a different path than a lot of other Republican governors right now. He seems like he's trying to to be more of one of these like economic growth related guys than just the culture war types. I think that's absolutely right. He has does not have much interest in the culture war at all. And I have to tell you, Rick, this is a guy who was a career cop. He was he was a cop for decades, became sheriff, uh, and then you know some people said, you know, you're at the end of your two terms. Wouldn't it be neat to be governor? And he said, <laughs> yeah, sure, that sounds good, right? And, and I don't think, and this isn't necessarily a criticism of Lombardo, but it's a fact. I don't think he had thought about a lot of these issues. Sure, he was a registered Republican, but if you're sheriff, you know, you're thinking of how to keep the crime rate low and put murderers away and all the rest of it. You're not, you're not thinking about abortion or school choice or, or some of the other issues. Uh, and so he didn't know much about those issues. I don't think he had given them a lot of thought. But I also think that he sees himself as a as a reasonable guy who's not hyper partisan, but who has to do a nod to that. His advisors are, are very skillful guys who have who have run successful Republican campaigns here for, for for the likes of Brian Sandoval and Heller at one time back in the ancient days when Heller was actually successful, uh, and and so they know what they're doing. Uh, and, but I think Lombardo chafes at the hyperpartisan stuff. But he's like most governors too. The Democrats control the legislature here, and, and they have no use for them, right? So they're they're going to get into conflict with them. But he is not a MAGA type at all, right? What are his numbers like? Is he? Do, I haven't looked at his polling lately. Uh, the polls that I've seen, and there have been a few, show he's pretty strong. Uh, that that uh, he is. It's not some of them show two to one approval, disapproval, uh, others slightly worse than that. But the honeymoon for him is still going on, I think. Well, it's, it is interesting because, you know, you've got the presidential, which uh, I know my group and many, many others and our, our, our team is going to be putting a lot of resources out there 
I know that the McConnell people are about to to are are still hunting for their perfect dream date out there for the Senate race. And I'm just curious on your on your take on other races beyond the presidency this year because it's obviously a state that that does churn a lot. It does turn people over lately. I, I think that's right, and I think the Senate race, which you just alluded to, is a marquee race for the Republicans. Jackie Rosen, who was in her first term. Uh, and who was a classic Nevada story who, uh, uh, you know, just a few years ago was the head of a synagogue out here. And Harry Reid called her up after after trying like 27 other people and said, how about running for Congress? She said, oh, that sounds good. Ran for Congress. And then the next cycle, he called her and said, how about running for Senate? She said, OK. Uh, and <laughs> she becomes a U.S. senator. Right. And so she is different than, 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 than a lot of, you know, longtime politicians. But. She she has learned the hard lessons of what ha- almost what happened to Catherine Cortez Masto. She's raised a ton of money. Uh, she's got good people around her. And, and the National Republicans, as you also alluded to, have a problem here. There is no because of the Democratic machine here, the Republicans don't have much of a bench. And so the person that the NRSC is, is favoring is a guy named Sam Brown, who has never won a race, Rick, either here or in Texas where he was just a few years ago. Now, he he raised a lot of money at the grassroots level against Adam Laxalt in the primary before he lost on a landslide. And he's got a great story to tell. He's this very badly burned veteran, a heroic story, but he's got no track record. But I have to tell you that, that if he gets out of the primary, as opposed to a couple of the nuts who are in there, then he's going to have a chance against Jackie Rosen just because of the what we've been talking about, the very nature of the state and, and, and what the voting patterns have been like in the past. I think that's one of the things that, that has intrigued me about it is a lot of the people that used to be very solidly in that Reed machine, moderate or, or center Democrat cohort, those people are very much working class in most respects. And there has been a sense that the Democrats are losing their touch with that voter demographic. Now, in 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 Nevada, it's much more of a service industry kind of feel for a lot of those voters. What's the appeal right now? Why are the Democrats losing their grip on those voters? And, and are you seeing any sign that they're getting it? Because I'm a little concerned they're not getting it. The Democrats here, and there's some very smart ones, were still part of the Reed machine, even though, though he passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, they get it. They understand that they that there is slippage among the key cohorts like blue collar workers, like the, the Latino vote, which propelled uh, Reed and presidential candidates here to victory in past elections, but was not as decisive for Biden the last time he ran. And then and, and he won by about two and a half points here. Uh, and so they get it and they are going to do things to try to coalesce that vote. They also believe and Catherine Cortez Masto used this to great advantage in 2022, Rick, that abortion uh, is going to be a big issue here. This is a pro-choice state. All yes. of the polling shows it's two to one. There's a referendum that cemented the pro-choice statute uh, into law can only be changed by a vote of the people that passed 30 years ago. But that's not good enough for the Democrats. They're trying to qualify another referendum mm-hmm. be on the ballot uh, in, in, in 2024. There have been some issues with it uh, to put language in the state constitution. Uh, it, it, it's overkill from a policy perspective, I think. But as a political organizing tool, I understand 
why they are doing it. So the answer is they get it. But Nevada, uh, and, and let me quote Donald Trump, if I may, who came here after he won the primary, and as he used to do, you probably remember back in, in these days in 2016, used to read the crosstabs of polls to show how strong he was. Oh, yes. And he talked about how he was winning here among the poorly educated. And he said, yep. I love the poorly educated. And they loved him back. <laughs> exactly right. And so uh, there is there is a you know a strong population here of people who don't have college degrees, and, and, and that worries the Democrats. Uh, here and has made their their uh, uh, organizing more difficult, along with that explosion of independent voters who are now the plurality in the state. Nevada is one of the states that I have been, you know, most fascinated by my whole life because it really is one city, and you basically wrap up the state. It really is one one metro, and the rest of the state is. Government-owned, radioactive, closed airspace, or basically unpopulated, other than Reno in the in the Northwest, I guess. And so, really, the politics of the city, as you said, it's the biggest driver of the economy in the state. But it, tell us a little bit about why it's also like the biggest driver of the politics in the state, even for the Republicans who don't who, who would prefer it to be a little less democratic. Yeah, and, and it has become a little less democratic. It's been the stronghold, and you're right. You know, two thirds or more of the vote is in uh, Las Vegas or Clark County, uh, and and then you have this vast. 15 counties separating Vegas from Reno, which is much smaller uh, urban oh, yeah. area. And and all of those counties in between are very red. And so the, the, the it has been kind of an article of faith for Democrats for a long time. Just win Clark County by a substantial enough margin, and there just aren't enough votes left uh, in, in, in the rest of the state. It's like 62% or something, right? It's some huge number. Of, 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 the, of the electorate? Of the total vote, yeah. The total, the total vote ends up being, um, I mean, the registered voters, it's 70%. Oh, God. Okay. During elections, it can vary from two-thirds uh, down to maybe as, as low as 62, like you say. But the bottom the bottom line is, is that the Democratic margin there has been shrinking, uh, not by anything the Republicans have done. They're less than a quarter of the vote now in Clark County, but because of, I keep going back to it, this independent registration. So the Democratic lead, which used to be double digits, is now down to eight and a half percent. And Biden only, Biden won by fewer than double digits. So did Catherine Cortez Masto. And Steve Sislak, the incumbent governor, won by, I think, only seven percent or so. And that's why he lost to Joe Lombardo. And so uh, that this is a real issue for the Democrats, even though the Republicans are essentially a non-entity down here. But the fact that the margins have been shrinking, which is why having the kind of analysis where you can find which of these independent voters are really your voters, being able to mm-hmm. sway them in Clark County, you can still win the election in Clark County. I should mention, to be fair to what we call the biggest little city in the world, Reno, uh, which is no more than just now just for than their bowling uh, alley there, which is which is made famous in movies like Kingpin, uh, right. is, is that Reno has changed. Reno in the old days, when I first got here, started covering politics long, long time ago, 35 plus years ago, it was reliably a a, blue, a, a red county. It is now the swing sure. county in mm-hmm. Nevada. And so if, you, if Republicans can win by landslide margins 
in rural Nevada and then win by a little bit in Washoe County, they can counteract Clark County if the Democrats don't win by too much. But it is what right. the Democrats have done in Reno that has really changed the dynamic and still made them, I think, slight favorites in most statewide races. So one of the questions that uh, if somebody just texted me a second ago, I mentioned I was talking to you, can you explain to our, to, to our listeners how the incredibly weird, screwed up caucus versus primary system works for the Republicans in your state? Because it is a matter of, of endless curiosity for, for political nerds. <laughs> I, I was hoping that this podcast would end, would end before I had to talk about this, but <laughs> I didn't talk about it. Nevertheless, this is it's so embarrassing for the state. Let me just say that because people all over the country, including you and others, are saying like, "What the heck is going on out in Nevada? What are they doing?" So for years, as you know, we had a caucus here, and then the Democrats decided after the disaster in Iowa and some other places, you know, we got to have a primary, especially after they were thinking of changing the order. We've got to have more credibility. Right, so right. it's passed it through the legislature a couple of legislatures ago. It only meets every other uh, year here, Rick. And and everything seemed like that was going to happen until suddenly uh, the Republican Party here decided with all of their election denying and we can't let the state run an election. And by the way, uh, Michael right. McDonald, the chairman, is you know, very close to Trump and has been ever since Trump won in 2016, they've decided that a caucus is a better way, uh, which, of course, is nonsense. And and they think they needed to fix it for Trump for another reason, too, which is this, which is that one thing that happened during COVID was was that they mailed ballots to everybody, which didn't used to happen. And And the Democrats, when they were in control, they liked that. They cemented that. And so now they're worried that if turnout is too large, that maybe Trump might not do as well. So uh, this is how it's going to work. You're going to have a Democratic and Republican primary state mandated on February Mm -hmm. 6th. And then two days later, the Republicans are going to have a caucus, which DeSantis filed for. I think he made a big mistake doing that. Uh, And and, and Trump are going going to be in. uh, And then Haley uh, is, is going to. She's probably going to win the primary because Trump won't be on the ballot. But imagine this. Imagine this. They're all, all these mail ballots are going to go out. They're going to get to Republican homes. every And they're not going to have Trump's name on it. Trump's and, Trump's and they're going to go, nah, never mind. Right, exactly. So the whole thing is going to be <laughs> chaos. And, and their defenses of it are just... Uh, laughable that they 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 essentially extorted the campaigns pay us fifty five thousand dollars and you can participate in the caucus but you are not allowed to be in the primary again i'm from florida so i know from fucked up campaign stuff that's that's like a record setter right there that's like that's like a high bar the polling i've seen out there is trump is dominant in whether it's a caucus a primary or, or people standing outside of a waffle house but it seems like Haley is still sort of – she seems like she's got a lot of juice in that fight out there. Like she seems like that's one of the places she wants to try to go out and, and claim a victory in a primary, even though the primary won't matter. How is Trump's perception – I mean, it seems like it goes uh, – you know, only – like the ratchet only turns one way. Like his voters only get more intense in most states. Are you seeing any splitting in the Trump base out there because of either – the chaos, January 6th, the lawsuits, or just regular exhaustion or anything else? It's hard to put my finger on that, but I think that, you know, my reflexive answer is no. 
they, they don't listen to anything, right? They, 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 they're in their echo chamber. And it's interesting, though, that, that you say, I mean, Haley, even though I think she's probably the favorite to win that primary, she hasn't done anything out here. She hasn't been here. She has no organization here at all. It's funny because her people this weekend, I picked up her people were like, we feel very good about Nevada. I'm like, do you? <laughs> I mean, I, I think I think she may well, may well win that. But the really interesting thing is because of all this nonsense about the primary and the caucus, that's going to be first. And she's going to get a headline, assuming she she wins. Uh, and uh, I'll assume she's going to get a big headline. Haley wins Nevada primary. Uh, and, and so that that could help. And again, this is going to depend on what happens in the states leading up to Nevada. Right. Uh, uh, whether it's meaningful or not. But a lot of smart Republicans out here have said to me, if I were DeSantis, I would have filed for the primary. Forget about the delegates. Uh, you know, we get 26 delegates, I think is the number. It's like 2% of the total. It's not, yeah, it's it's pretty inconsequential. Well, you know this better than I do. What's really important in these early going is to pick up momentum. All the media will say so-and-so has momentum and you, and you keep going. Uh, and so why not try for that? Because DeSantis is not going to do well in that caucus. All other things being equal, I think uh, Trump will dominate. I don't even trust the Republican Party here, which is infested with MAGA types from the state chairman on down to count the votes fairly. Uh, so who, I, I don't know what DeSantis was thinking unless he thinks this is going to the convention and it's going to be a delegate fight at the convention, which I think is pretty unlikely. I think you'll agree. Having been through this in 2016, folks, I can assure you that doesn't work. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so in the on the Democratic primary, which is not really much of a primary right now, uh, Dean Phillips did not make the ballot. He didn't file in time. And other than that, it's Marianne Williamson. So I think Joe Biden seems like he's in pretty good shape for the Democratic. If he doesn't win that, they have much bigger problems, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, it is a fascinating state. Is, is there a story out there that we're missing that we should be the national level we should be looking at that you think might make a difference in the in the coming months? I think it's almost impossible to foresee that. Rick, uh, I don't. I, I think it's possible if if the economy were to turn uh, for the worse again here, which is not impossible, that that could have a a, a real deleterious effect on Biden's chances here. But, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. again, uh, it's December fourth. There's a long way to go. I, I think Biden uh, is a slight favorite, but only slight favorite, and the Democrats have their work cut out for them. Well, you know, one of the most fascinating developments in my in my life was after years of fighting against the guy in 2020, a couple of us had a conversation with Harry Reid, very late in the game, for, for very late in his life. And I got an education on the Reid machine at that point. And, I was, and all I could think of was, if they could have replicated this in 20 states, there would be no Republican Party in this country because it was that robust and organized and directed and committed. And folks, whether you are a Republican or a Democrat, if you ever want to study... A, a political organization that took care of its people and trained folks and brought them up and built a farm team and did all the organizing. Holy mackerel. There's a book there, my friend. <laughs> I am writing a book. Are you? Talk to me. I'm, I'm when writing, is it coming out? I'm writing the definitive biography of Harry Reid. And there's quite a, there's quite a lot of in there about uh, the Reid machine and how it was formed and what it did. And I, I, and I agree with you. It is, it, it was something else. 
Uh, when is it coming out? That I don't know, Rick. I'd, I'd like to tell you, unfortunately, that's up to the publisher. That's also the same story with my Florida book right now. Who knows when it will come out? It's a mystery. <laughs> so, well, John, thank you so much for coming on the enemies list today, my friend. I really appreciate your wisdom as always. And uh, we will have you back on the show as this election year kicks into high gear because it is uh, – it is going to be a place where your home state is going to be the one of the centers of the political universe. So thank you again, and we'll talk to you soon. On the list today, based on the previous podcast that I recorded uh, over the weekend, is Christian Ziegler, the chairman of the Republican Party of Florida. Now, folks, you have heard me writing and talking about Christian in the last few days. He's a guy none of you have ever heard of until now. Christian Ziegler, the chairman of the Republican Party of Florida, is married to Bridget Ziegler, one of the founders of Moms for Liberty. She is also Ron DeSantis's designated uh, meat puppet on the Vichy Walt Disney board that he installed to try to destroy Walt Disney in Florida, try to break them to his political will so they would stop having gay characters in their content, which it, why that's the business of the government, I, I'm, I'm befuddled by. But... Christian Ziegler is not a good guy. I could have said that well before this story broke. And look, it's not just because Christian Ziegler and his wife were in a long-time three-way relationship, in a menage a trois, if you will, a throuple, uh, to use the more modern parlance. It's not because of that. That, I find, to be whatever. But Christian and his wife, Bridget, were both very, very, very much in the culture war. They're the folks who believe that anyone who is a drag queen is obviously a pedophile trying to recruit to your children, and that books in school that have a gay character could turn your child gay. It's always projection with these assholes. It's always projection. And so all of their high and mighty moralizing about the corrupting influences on society and the gays and every other damn thing turns out to have been bullshit. Now, this would be a laughable and, and hilarious story if it were only about their throuple being made public, but it's not. The reason the story came to light is because Christian Ziegler, the chairman of the Republican Party of Florida, and his wife Bridget, founder of Moms for Liberty and a DeSantis appointee, were exposed because Christian the, went to the home of the woman in the, the, the third part of their throuple, of their meat tripod, he went to her home. And according to police reports, and the, uh, it is alleged in those reports, that he raped her. And that's where it stops being funny and starts being deadly goddamn serious. The chairman of the Republican Party of Florida, Christian Ziegler, a Ron DeSantis ally, a Donald Trump ally, how you split that difference, I don't know, but another story for another day, has refused to step down as chairman absolutely refused. Put out a statement over the weekend that was a classic in obfuscation and bullshit, saying we're praying because this the force is trying to stop our, our, our war to protect the children. It's all garbage. And he is garbage. This guy refuses to step, to step down, even though Ron DeSantis wants him gone. Casey DeSantis wants him gone. But it really is emblematic of how a party with all the power, because the Republican Party has all the power in Florida, every bit of it, 100% of the power. Democrats have no power whatsoever. 
Don't fool yourselves. You don't, you've barely got a party in the state. But it's illustrative of how the, the abundance of political power leads to the abuse of personal power and leads to the abuse of physical power. Until proven guilty. However, there is a level that isn't about the judicial decision on whether Christian Ziegler is guilty. And that level is a moral level. And if you are accused of a crime of this severity of rape and sexual assault and sexual battery, you should say, as, as a right-thinking person, I am going to withdraw from my position as chairman of the Republican Party of Florida. I am going to put this on hold. I'm going to clear my name. But he's not. He's following the Donald Trump playbook. Know that you're guilty. Persist in, in screaming that you're not. Blame the liberals for attacking you and try to hold out. You know, I've put a lot of people on the enemies list in the last year and change y'all. We've done about 130 shows now. But I feel a sense of revulsion and disgust about Christian Ziegler, the chairman of the Republican Party of Florida, the representative of all of the county Republicans in the state, all of the congressional Republicans in the state, all of the elected members of the Florida legislature and local office. They are all in the Florida Republican Party food chain. And he runs it. And so, folks, if you're a Republican elected in Florida and you're standing by a guy who is a credibly accused rapist, then you need to really rethink your predicates because you're all on the enemies list. Thanks again for listening to the enemies list. If you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at the Rick Wilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times. Please rate, review, like, blah, blah, blah. But you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends. And if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list. Stay off the list.